Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Does Magna Carta mean nothing to you? Did she die in vain, brave Hungarian peasant girl who forced King John to sign the pledge at Runnymede and close the boozers at half-past ten? Is all this to be forgotten? The wise words of Anthony Aloysius Hancock in Hancock's Half Hour, Twelve Angry Men. Welcome to The Rest is History. As always, we take our cues from the comedies of the 1950s and... Today we are talking about Magna Carta, King John, the document that supposedly enshrines the liberties of every freeborn Englishman. Tom Holland, you're a big Magna Carta fan, no doubt. I am quite a fan of Magna Carta, which I I feel is quite an unfashionable thing to be, really, because my my sense of um, reading historians on it is that they they can sometimes kind of downplay it. They laugh Um, at Magna Carta. They do laugh at Magna Carta. and that's why I think we we've brought on a uh, we, we've got as our guest um, a historian who he's going to laugh who, at it for us. <laughs> well, no, <laughs> he he ran a website called Magna Carta Balls, which <laughs> may well imply his view on it, um, and that is um, the one and only Ted Valance, professor of history at Roehampton, author of A Radical History of Britain, um, a seventeenth-century specialist, currently working on a book on the trial of Charles the First. So, not a fan of dodgy monarchs. Um, Ted, uh, are you a fan of John? Uh, no, I, I, and I think very few people were or, or are. I mean, I think he's just one of those monarchs who, I mean, maybe there is a revisionist biography of King John about to come out that I don't know about, but he seems like he's he, he's, he's got a pretty bad press from his day until the present. As, as Sellers and Eatman put it in 1066 and all that, he's our, our first memorable wicked uncle in, in English history. And I, and I think that reputation has kind of stayed with him. Yeah. Ted, Tom Holland, uh, two weeks ago, presented a rousing defence of the Emperor Nero as an uxorious, <laughs> uh, clean living, chariot yeah. racing, renaissance man. You did say he was uxorious. I did, so, yeah, that's what he was. Uh, you, I, I, I would be astounded if you haven't come into this podcast armed, tooled up for a defence of King John. <laughs> Am I right? Well, I, I think I mean, I think we should put him, first of all, in his historical context, shouldn't we? Before yeah. we, we come on to so his weighing up King. just how bad he was. So, yeah, so, he's, so, so Dominic, give us a, a quick skim oh. description of him um that's put me on the spot so it's okay his, oh, sorry his day, no no i'm gonna do it i'm gonna I, do, do, you, do you think do you think i'm not tooled up because i am i mean well, i just you. suddenly realized it was impolite because we've got ted here well ted do you know king john's dates off of the top of your head <laughs> no <laughs> professor of history at roehampton <laughs> but, but, striking sorry, you hard there 1199 to 1199 to 1216 are you reading he's that a, off a piece of paper um, <laughs> he succeeds he succeeds richard the lionheart uh he loses normandy so he's only king for 17 years um but ted and i uh, ted and i were once colleagues together at the university of sheffield and we had a colleague who was a medieval historian who appeared on a channel 5 documentary series uh, talk about King John, and it was called The Most Evil Men in History. <laughs> and the people on this series were Stalin, Hitler, Pol Pot, and King John. And I think that was kind of harsh, because as far as I understand it, John was a, ba- a poor king and a weak king, and he, he, he sort of squeezed people for money, and he lost battles. But he, I mean, mm. to call him evil is probably a bit 
I mean, it's not Pol Pot. I, I think we can probably, yeah, I think in comparison to Pol Pot, probably, yeah, he's he's a, you, you know, we're being a bit harsh on him by comparing him to genocidal 20th century uh, dictators. Yeah, and and I think I think sort of, I mean, probably in in if 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 we you know we're we're trying to be fair to John, I would say that he is a tyrant in the classical sense, in that he's somebody who rules according to his will and what he wants to get done, and so he does things like you know imprison members of the family of people who aren't paying him taxes um, and starves them to death. You know, so yes, he's not that, a nice guy from from that perspective. Uh, but no, that was a mother not, and he, a mother and her son, wasn't it? Yes, in Corf Castle, yes. and when their corpses were found, it turned out that the mother had eaten the cheek of her son. I mean, that's I, I, that's, <laughs> that's pretty surely, evil. Well, that's that's pretty evil. But Tom, that's yes. sure you could argue that's the mother at fault rather than King John. <laughs> Can you? Uh, well, I know. I think I think if you're peckish, you know, you haven't got anything else to eat. What, if you're applying you, the same standards you'd applied to Nero. Then I think, uh, <laughs> I don't, Nero, Nero never. I mean, Nero killed his mother, but he didn't eat her. So, <laughs> so sorry, he's my still, case. He's still, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But I mean, John's, John's problem. But I mean, I think so. The the judgment of John Gillingham, emeritus professor of medieval history at the London School of Economics and Political Science, he was a shit. <laughs> <laughs> and and I think that's true. He, he he was clearly a very very unpleasant man. I mean, he had this horrible habit of so William Marshall, the great knight errant the greatest knight of his day who stands by john through thick and thin um john would go up to 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 william marshall and kind of tell him that his his best friends had died in distant battles and it would be completely made up it would just be done to kind of get a rise out of him so that's a kind of genuinely horrible thing to do sort of jackass approach to kingship is it that he's he's having to raise money because of the one catastrophe of his reign which is losing this great empire in france that he's inherited from, well, ultimately from William the Conqueror, who's the Duke of Normandy, conquers England, of course, but then the accumulation of other um, territories that he's got from his father, Henry II, and which his brother, the great crusader, Richard the Lionheart, had defended so heroically. And then John just loses the lot. And so then he is spending the rest of his reign essentially screwing money out of England, this great milch cow, to try and raise cash. He does that. He launches um, a an invasion attempt on France to get his territories back. And then at this battle at Bovine in 1214, he loses. And that's a judgment both on him as a, a, a tactician, as a commander, but also a judgment on him coming from God, because clearly God has judged him and found him wanting. And basically everything follows from that, doesn't it? I mean, that's what Magna Carta is about, is that that he's been so oppressive. He's now, after, after Bovine, having to raise more money and yeah. people just can't face it. Yeah, I, I think it's it. That's totally the, the context. It's totally this this ratcheting up of taxation. You know, six times the level uh, at the start of his reign, uh, and the pressure of that becomes um, you know something that the English elite are no longer prepared to bear. Particularly in light of the military disaster um, that that has, has befallen John and the loss of those lands, and that is the context in which this document, Magna Carta is is created um of effectively a civil war um with um you know the rebel barons basically you know deciding that they are going to um you know resist uh the the heavy burden of taxation that's placed upon them and forced john by force of arms to the negotiating table um uh, and that's where we get to with, with magna carta in in june of 1215 
And Ted, is that is that something that's completely unprecedented? So in other words, is this the first time a king has signed up to anything to limit his own power? Or have there been sort of instances of this before? So I think when when historians are sort of thinking about this and looking at this in in a sort of broader European um, context, I mean, there have been argue, arguments that there are kind of similar sorts of ar- aristocratic charters um, that sort of place similar kinds of um, burdens on monarchy. I think the the argument has been that that Magna Carta is exceptional because of its breadth and because it seems to go much beyond just being a kind of set of aristocratic. Um, demands and includes these broader principles. Um, and I think some of the most interesting work has, has actually been to say that, in, in fact, those kinds of principles about the binding nature of agreements on royal power are actually things that are accepted across uh, Western Europe as well, that you can find kind of Im- imperial judgments from a century or more uh, prior to Magna Carta, which basically say that the king can't just tear up you know, agreements that are made and seize property uh, and tax people. There has to be a process of law. And actually that sort of idea of, of, of judgment by your peers, which obviously, you know, literally kind of, you know, fellow nobles, is is something that's a kind of Europe-wide principle um, that's being observed and adhered to. So it, it's not the, the necessarily the first in terms of the statements of these principles, but it is the kind of scope of it and the scale of it, uh, which is unusual. Um, which actually connects back to, you know, what, what Tom was talking about in terms of the way in which, you know, we might see Magna Carta as a product of a tax revolt, which is basically that John is kind of looking at so many different tax loopholes and trying to sort of screw money out of so many different areas that it is just this kind of comprehensive suite of things that the king can't do. You know, he can't fiddle yeah. with inheritance in this way or wards in this way or, you know, forests, all these different things he can't do. Um, the, the charter saying, you know, have to be kind of hived off and protected, basically. Because one of the things, one of John's qualities that you could emphasise would be precisely that he does have this incredible command of detail. And, you know, if there's a chance to make money, he will sniff it out and come after yeah. you. And that's precisely why Magna Carta has to be so detailed, <laughs> is because they yeah. want to block everything off and because they don't yeah, yeah. trust him an inch. Um, yeah. but, but, but also, I mean, John is brought to the negotiating table essentially because by 1215 there's a stalemate and what what brings the stalemate really round is that that his enemies capture london and without london john can't win but equally john has you know an army has mercenaries has everything has all his castles so the barons can't win so they decide to meet i mean windsor is basically kind of neutral ground is it? i suppose john's got a huge castle at windsor but they meet at runnymede which is meadows open space and they meet on an island in the middle of the Thames and that's the measure of how little trust there is between both yeah, sides yeah and, and both camps are armed as well and they are as you say effectively meeting somewhere that is you know near to where you know near to London but not in London which is now held by the rebels so it's sort of a a relatively safe neutral zone but one in which obviously neither side trusts the other enough to come unarmed to this to this meeting have you have you heard of the anchorwick u i have not heard of the anchorwick okay, so I'm, I I'm dying to know more <laughs> I, well i bring it i, I mentioned it just because my uh, friend jamie muir ted who you know um, yes. we've all done pub quizzes together he he took me on a tour of his um uh, places where he grew up and the anchorwick u is a, a u next to saint mary's priory in runnymede and apparently it was on an island 
it isn't anymore. Very, very ancient. And the theory is, is that this is where John set the seal on Magna Carta. So highly contested, but I just throw that in because it's a kind of interesting detail. Ted, to move on from Tom's fascinating detail. um, (laughs) um, uh, So they're there. They've got their sort of soldiers with them. There's the barons. There's John and his sort of his cronies. How much is this basically a, a purely kind of internal elite matter that these are just people from this sort of top caste of society and no one else could give two hoots? Um, I mean, I think there's one sort of, if you like, jaundice view of Magna Carta, which is just, you know, um, and, and Tom has brought up my Magna Carta balls history, which is just to sort of say this is, you know, very, a squabbling amongst various rich people, you know, um, a series of demands from the top 1% for tax exemption. Um, uh, you know, we, we could view it in that way, but I, I think most, uh, of the experts on the period actually argue that there is more going on here, that there is something more, uh, broad ranging and substantive about sort of rights and liberties that's being articulated. And, and I think actually that's one of the things that, um, Susan Reynolds in her, in her piece on sort of, you know, the European context of Magna Carta stresses is that, when the barons are talking about things like judgment of peers, they are engaging with these broader kind of agreed principles that are there. And, and Ted, the, the guy who's basically the umpire, the guy who's, who's kind of convening this conference, Stephen Langton, Archbishop of Canterbury, um, former professor at, at Paris, University of Paris. Um, John's had an enormous run in with the Pope about whether to let him in or not. Um, Basically, John's kind of submitted to the Pope and let him in. Um, how key is his role? Because obviously he's he's not a neutral operator. He's there to defend the interests of the church, right? Yeah. And I, I think, you know, the position of the church and the papacy is important as well, because both sides are actually trying to get this external, um, you know, approval on their actions from the papacy uh in in these negotiations as well so both the rebels and john john who's previously been excommunicated for his failure to recognize stephen langton as well as trying to now get innocent the third on side to get him on his side because innocent the third is a pope of kind of enormous sweep isn't it and that's an example of how in a way unlucky john is that he's up against the pope who really is in a position to kind of humble kings yeah, and, and also that it's not just, you know, this is not just um, an English elite concern. It's a concern that obviously, you know, connects with France as well as with the papacy. Uh, and so so John is not just, you know, dealing with the, these English barons. He's dealing with these other forces as well and trying to negotiate with the, the, these other external uh, forces too. And, of course, the rights of the church also become an important part of, you know, the discussions within the charter. Um, and that's actually, you know, one of the one of the you know the clauses of the charter that remains in legal force today is the one that protects your know, notionally protects the rights of the church could could would it be very boring or would it be very interesting i think it'd be very the answer is always it's very boring <laughs> if i just very quickly skimmed through what magna carta says well it'd be good to yeah. know what it says yeah yeah yeah, okay. yeah. Yeah. So I've, I've got I've got David Carpenter's edition for the Penguin Classics came out obviously in, in 2015 for the anniversary. Yeah, uh, very good edition. And so it kicks off with John by the grace of God, King of England, Lord of Ireland, blah 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 blah. Uh, and then you get a list of all the people, the witnesses, and it's the churchmen who come first. So Stephen Langton, Archbishop of Dublin, papal envoy, etc. And then you get a list of all the kind of noblemen. So that's how it kicks off. 
And as Ted, as you said, the very first, so, so this has been divided up into chapters, I think later on, isn't it? It's some later jurist who does this. So it's not actually in the documents. But the very first one is saying the English church should be free. And so that's still on the statute book. That's one yeah. of the, one of the yeah. things. Then you get loads of stuff about basically the barons trying to stop John from raising money in sneaky ways. And you just get loads and loads of them. And it's all so about this is all the inheritance widows. stuff, isn't it? And with, yeah, widows. You yeah. Can't, yeah. You can't charge you to marry widows this person and or whatever. And, yeah. and yeah. Jews. So Jews are the moneylenders. Uh, yeah. and, and John is, you know, kind of exploiting them to get cash. So there he's trying to reign. Oh, and, and London. So London is, you know, it, it's siding with the barons. You get, and the city of London is to have all its ancient liberties and free customs by both land and water. So that's still in force. That's yeah. still so in that's, force as well. So importantly, yeah. obviously, yeah. the city of London. Yeah. And I think London is the only town mentioned in Magna Carta. So that's a kind of reflection of its importance. Yeah. Uh, then just, you know, loads of stuff. Uh, th- then you start getting mentions of um, uh, people. So, so <laughs> no one is to be distrained to build bridges at riverbanks. So I guess that's not on the statute book. But I mean, that's something perhaps if, you know, we have to start building bridges for Boris over the Irish Sea <laughs> or something. This, this is a, this is actually what sounds like a very minor one, but um, Su- Susan Reynolds points out that it's quite an interesting one in terms of the broader implications because that one is basically saying that you know it's one that's even dealing with the rights of the unfree. It's saying you can't yeah. you know get get your villains to to build bridges or whatever. So it's yeah. actually it's actually you know as as, as boring and, and sort of irrelevant <laughs> yeah. to our interests as it seems now. It's maybe one that actually says some interesting things about the broader implications. So hold on, is this a world in which in which you were at risk if you sort of, you know, a sunny day, you wandering down the lane, of being press ganged into building a bridge at a moment's Absolute, notice. Absolutely, yeah. It was uh, a, a common anxiety of the, of the labouring <laughs> poor of the time. Or it seems of, of having someone nick your, <laughs> nick your horse or cart, because that's also banned. So there's this kind of idea that, that John could just nick your car. So that's, <laughs> that's important. Oh, and wood. Neither we nor our bailiffs shall take wood belonging to another person for castle. So that's banned as well. Mm-hmm. Oh, and fish weirs. We love, we fish love the weirs, fish weirs. So that's article 33. All fish weirs are henceforth to be removed completely from the Thames and the Medway. So what's all that about? Has John been basically overfishing or stealing other people's fish? That apparently is the Archbishop of Canterbury. He put that in because he wanted to sail up the Medway to his, his summer resort. <laughs> so that's a, that's a bit sneaky. <laughs> uh, standard drinking measures based on, on London measurements. So that's, that's, that's yeah. there. And then you get the famous, the two famous ones that are still on the statute book, which is really what makes Magna Carta famous across the world. No free man is to be arrested or imprisoned or disseized, dis- dispossessed of property or outlawed or exiled or in any way destroyed, nor will we go against him, nor will we send against him, save by the lawful judgment of his peers or by the law of the land. And then the next one, to no one will we sell, to no one will we deny or delay right or justice. And that, that's the mm, kind of, that's... from our perspective, I guess, the heart yeah. of it. Um, then there's loads of stuff about forests. We might come on to that. Um, and then there's a, a, they're obviously trying to, to, to make sure that John doesn't wrinkle out of this. So there's loads of stuff about how, um, uh, you know, if, if, if John is breaking the law, then people can object, which obviously John didn't want at all, but I guess shows how, how, um, mistrusted he was. Uh, there's loads of stuff about him, not just, he's claiming to, that he wants to go on a crusade. This again is a scam. They're trying to block yeah. off. Uh, there's loads of stuff about the Welsh and the Scots, which is interesting. So it's, you know, it's thought of as an English document, but it's actually a kind of British one, isn't it? Because it's, 
kind of dealing with them as well. They're parties to this sort of civil war really against John. So that that's their, their presence um, ex- explained within the chart. Yeah. And then, and then um, kind of a notorious thing that then gets cut, doesn't it, from future editions of the charter where there are to be 25 barons to, to keep watch on John. Yeah. Um, so that's a huge restraint on his autonomy, right? That he's got this kind of commi- committee of barons sitting over him to sort of, what, to, to hold him in check? Is that the, yes. the deal? Yes, ba- basically this is a sort of enforcement clause that they this, this council are going to sort of be there to sort of monitor observance of the charter. And if, if John, you know, doesn't observe it to their um, satisfaction then they have all sorts of rights in terms of seizing his military resources. And it talks about kind of possessing his castles and so, and so forth. Um, and, and I think this is one, you know, it, it's one on one level, this is one thing that means that this document doesn't have a long shelf life because it, it, it basically means that John, it, John's power is fundamentally undercut by this, this council of barons, but it's also something that is a real distinction from things that have gone before and these, these sort of Euro- European precedents, um, that we might have for Magna Carta. This, this council of barons seems to be a, a real divergence from accepted ideas about hierarchy, about loyalty, about obedience. This does seem to be something that is moving in a direction where you're saying actually, um, you know, the person at the top of the tree can have their power checked if they're not ruling in accordance with the law. Can I just jump in and ask a very boring question? I'm sure Ted will be able to answer quickly. <laughs> Why didn't they just kill John? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's that's a, that's a very good question, which I don't have a quick answer to. But I, I think, um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess it's a question of... Um, this isn't a civil war in which alternative claimants to the throne are being, we're not, we're not talking war of the roses scenario where alternative kind of claimants are, uh, parties are sort of, you know, um, waging war against each other. Um, this doesn't seem to be one in which, you know, there's a dynastic struggle at at, at the center of it. Um, and so I don't think it's the sense that people want to, um, you know, remove that dynasty and replace it with another one. Um, but it is about, dealing with um uh you know john's you know dealing with a bad king not wanting to you know to to replace the monarchy but sort of how to hedge it in how to sort of place limitations on it but but ted what then happens is so so the the final kind of section they they took all ill will indignation and rancor which has arisen between us from this time of the discord we have fully remitted and pardoned to everyone so the ill will, indignation, rancor is obviously summing up of what John's like. But obviously he doesn't stick to it, and it all goes wrong, and, and yeah. the war breaks out again. John John loses all his what he loses all the jewels in the wash or whatever, um, yes. crossing the, yeah. the, the the estuary, yeah. Um, yeah. and there's a great storm, and he dies. And yeah. peaches, he's eaten too many peaches from from, from eating uh, raw cider, a new cider, yeah. and raw peaches. Yes, in as you the do. Worlds, yeah. So he leaves behind a young son. Henry the Third, but basically yeah. the barons have decided that they're going to hand it over to the son of the King of France, Louis, who, who by the time of, of John's death has seized about half the country, hasn't he? And it's only William Marshall, the the great knight, who by this point is very old and actually is the first person to be named in the list of peer, of, of of magnates. So in the Magna Carta, um, it's only thanks to him that they're able to defeat it, and they do that by reissuing Magna Carta. And and if that hadn't happened. Then perhaps Magna Carta would would be completely forgotten. Is that right? Yeah, I think that I think that is right, and uh, you know, and I think those the 
the uh, Henry III's Magna Carta is is the really critical one in terms of the memory of this document. So that's twelve seventeen, isn't it? Uh, twelve twenty five oh, is, so is there. Well, yeah. there's a. The, I think you're right. There is a twelve seventeen issue. Yeah. There, because that comes out with the Charter of the of... Forest, which is also very confusing. Which is also, <laughs> but we won't get into that because that's too complicated. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, and I think those those thirteenth century kind of um you know and fourteenth century reiterations of Magna Carta are are critical to people actually remembering it. And as you as you say, if this had been something where actually you know you know john uh, gets the pope to nullify you know issue decrees that it, the magna carta is nullified and barons you know decide to instead install um the son of the king of france then maybe we, we completely forget about yeah. this instance altogether yeah we should probably have a break but just i mean basically just to sum up and to line up the second half where we'll talk about the, the you know the afterlife of magna carta here's a question from gordon smith is the point of Magna Carta that the king recognises that he is bound by the laws of the land rather than being above them? Otherwise, what is its significance? I mean, is that essentially the key, the key factor to bear in mind, or are we being over romantic about that? Uh, no, I, I don't think we are. But I think that's I think that's only one of the um, takeaways from it. I think the other one is, you know, well, there are several, but I think another really important one is actually about um, liberty in general and, and, and freedom of the individual. And that's that's another critical thing, I think, that comes from Magna Carta. Oh, that's very romantic, Ted. Isn't it? Yeah, Talking yeah. About liberty. Yeah, it's great. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> what a note on which to go to a break. Very Absolutely, good. Yeah. Liberty. We'll see you back soon. Welcome back to The Rest is History. We're talking about uh, Magna Carta. We have seen off King John. Matthew Paris, the great chronicler, said of him, foul as it is, hell itself is made fouler by the presence of John. Let's hope no one says that about The Rest is History and the presence of Ted Valance on our podcast. <laughs> um, now, so we've done Magna Carta, we've done John, and we're going to do its afterlife, which I think is in, in many ways a more fascinating story. It's something you've written a lot about, Ted. And we've got a question from Simon Hodge. And he says, at what point did the perception of Magna Carta move from being about the rights of an elite to a more generalised conception of English rights? And does that shift have any merit? And I guess that's the big question, isn't it? So when people talk about Magna Carta today in the newspapers, they're to are they talking about an imaginary Magna Carta that was basically invented hundreds of years afterwards, do you think? Uh, I think that to some extent talking about an imaginary Magna Carta, if they're talking about, you know, it defending the right to open soft play areas during lockdown, for example. Because <laughs> that's not I, mentioned, I think, is it? I think, that's that's I not think one of in, the statutes. <laughs> but we, we, yeah, the fish weirs, yes, soft play areas, no. <laughs> but, but we might come back to soft play areas, I hope, later on. But I, I think that there is, there is something genuine, um, you know, that there, there is a, um, a genuine, uh, part the Magna Carta has to play, an important part the Magna Carta has to play in the development of the idea of um, rights and liberties extending beyond the elite. And that's something that actually starts, um, you know, we can argue that it actually starts with the 1215 Charter itself, but certainly in the 13th century and on into the 14th century kind of reiterations um, of Magna Carta. So in the, in the, in Magna Carta, they they talk about the free man, liber homo. Yeah. So that, yeah. obviously the question then is, um, who are the unfree men? How many are there? And by what point can every Englishman 
and I suppose it's Englishmen rather than women, is it? Um, yes. Be yes. counted I mean, as free. What's what's yeah. the process? Yeah. So, I mean, yes, in terms of it being, you know, defined as, as men, that's something that doesn't change. Um, although, um, I don't know whether we're going to come on to it anyway, but um, women's suffrage campaigners did point out that the English law generally uses, um, you know, interprets masculine pronouns universally. Yeah. And so Magna Carta rights have been seen to apply to women as well as to men. Um, but one of the things that happens over the 13th and 14th century is this language of this dig- distinction between free and unfree uh, in the language of the Charter starts to be watered down and actually uh, obliterated. So it just starts to talk about men instead of, of free men. Um, and so these clauses about, you know, denying uh, right or justice, those really evocative ones, the ones that are still, you know, have, have power of law today, um, come uh, to have this more universal uh, meaning attributed to them um and that's as i say that's something that's happening in the medieval period it's not a, a modern um reinvention it's something that is um a, a part of what's going on with uh, these re- reissuing confirmations of the charter over the 13th 14th century the other thing that's happening as well is it's not just sort of a document that is being you know circulated amongst the elite it's also something that is going out being confirmed circulated in courts of law so it's also got a kind of broader audience to it and a broader kind of reception to it as well um so that it's getting embedded in a broader sense in in terms of the national culture and teg also can i just ask the so magna carta blocks off all these wheezes that john has been using to raise money so is is it a coincidence that it's in the, the the decades and then the centuries that follow that you start to get the rise of Parliament and the idea that the king has to turn to Parliament to raise money? So in that sense, is Magna Carta, although it doesn't mention Parliament, could it be considered you know one of the kind of key influences on the growth of the parliamentary system in England? Yeah, I, I think so. In terms of that, um, you know, the, 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 as you say, in that kind of check on um, you know royal power to to raise money. Um, which is obviously one of the critical things, the critical functions of, you know, the medieval and early modern, um, parliament. And one of the things that then comes to be seen as, you know, one of the things that that charter of 1215 is embodying, even as, as you say, it doesn't actually, you know, use the language of this institution at this stage isn't in existence. So, yeah. And Ted, um, if it's a crucial turning point, my sense, and maybe I'm wrong, is that it comes around about the 17th century when the, when Magna Carta really becomes enshrined um, as this sort of people start to argue that it's the foundational text of kind of English liberty. Is that right? Is it sort of in the era of the Civil War and and the sort of the protectorate and the sort of the idea of Magna Carta being linked to the kind of good old cause? Is, am, I, am I making that up? Uh, no, I think it's, it is incredibly important, um, in the rhetoric of, um, Parliament and those who are resisting, uh, Charles I's personal rule, um, in, uh, in uh, Charles I's government in 1620s, um, and then, uh, during the Civil War in the 1640s. And there was an argument that really, um, Magna Carta is, is, is really reinvented in the 17th century, um, uh, primarily by the English common law jurist Sir Edward Cook, um, who who talks about Magna Carta in these glowing terms as the, as the fountain of all the fundamental laws. So when is he doing that? 
So this is in his Institutes, which are posthumously published in 1642, but he's written much earlier. And and actually, he's himself a victim of, of, of raw power in that it's actually Charles I and his government that suppresses the publication of the Institutes right. because they see it as a kind of politically dangerous text, as one that's sort of laying out limitations on so, raw power. So 1642, start of the Civil War, and yeah. you have a king who, like John, has been resorting to all kinds of taxation wheezes. And he yes. is then faced by civil opposition and he loses London. Yes. So were these analogies that were pressing home so there in are, the 1640s? Yeah, I mean, there, I mean, are, there are some, yeah, I mean, there are some fairly stark parallels there. Um uh, I mean, uh, you, you, I, I don't think actually Charles gets compared to John personally that much, although you're subject of a previous, uh, um, rest is history podcast. He has, he was compared to Nero. Um, <laughs> oh, the Asterius. Uh, yes. <laughs> the Asterius <laughs> man of taste. Yes, yes, I suppose he was. <laughs> yes, exactly. For his, for being, uh, uh, uh yeah, a essay. That's right. Um, uh, so, so it, it is very much part of, you know, the political discourse of the 1640s. Um, and it's something which is, um, being invoked, I think, in even broader ways, uh, in, in the 1640s too. So if you look at the way in which the level of John Lilburn uses Magna Carta, he starts to talk about Magna Carta as embodying birthrights. So, so this is something, you know, Magna Carta is basically distilling the innate rights of the Englishman, the freeborn Englishman's rights are, are, you know, um, written within Magna Carta. So we kind of get this extension of Magna Carta from, you know, the, the, this, this document into something that is, uh, an embodiment of the, the innate birthrights of, of, of the freeborn Englishman. So at that point, people like John Lilburn and the Levellers. So we talked about them, didn't we, Tom and I, um, yeah, with Paul Cromwellian Lane. podcast. So at that point, are they talking about a Magna Carta that exists in their imagination, basically? I mean, have they read it? Are they aware of all the stuff about the weirs? Or are they just, <laughs> or are well, they well, just, have they just invented this sort of imaginary Magna Carta that they think enshrines this sort of, you know, anti-Norman yoke, Anglo-Saxon. Okay, but the, but the Norman yoke. I mean, that's that's separate again, isn't it? Or is it the same thing? Because well, no, they're they're bound together. And and you know, to 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 answer you know your your question, Dom, that they're not kind of making it up in the sense that Lilburn is getting his Magna Carta from Cook's Institutes, which is you know he's he's you know you know reads this voraciously as this sort of you know text which is detailing all of the rights and liberties that English people enjoy through the common law and uh, Magna Carta being, you know, one of the fundamental, fundamental, um, you know, documents and distillations of this. And he's also taking Cook's view of Magna Carta, which is that Magna Carta is not new law. Magna Carta is a, is a restatement of fundamental laws, which goes back um, to the Anglo-Saxon. Yes, absolutely. In his view. Yes, yes. So, so, you know, this Norman yoke, uh, you know, the, the, the conqueror's laws that are, are, are introduced. Magna Carta is a kind of reaffirmation of those, those earlier Anglo-Saxon freedoms and liberties. That's the Magna Carta ball. Yes. (laughs) Because that's clearly not true, is it? I mean, Magna Carta has nothing to do with, with ancient liberties of Anglo-Saxon freedom. No. No, but that's also okay. the Magna Carta. <laughs> Am I not right in thinking, Ted, that that is also the Magna Carta, though, that has gone to America? So the Amer- Americans who are interested in the the sort of intermingled American and, and English or British history, they love Magna Carta. The American yes. Bar Association paid for 
you know, the sort of Runnymede stuff, didn't they? And they've yeah. always been fascinated by that. And their Magna Carta is, in some ways, it's the 17th century kind of level of Magna Carta rather than the, the 1215 Weirs Magna Carta. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, certainly. I mean, I think yeah, it's it, it's the it's the Magna Carta that supposedly guarantees no t- no taxation without representation. Um, it's the Magna Carta um, that you know guarantees the rights of representative assemblies. Um, uh, and yeah, definitely not the Magna Carta that's sort of about um, preventing people from being forced to build br- build bridges. <laughs> Although, I mean, I, I if if an American president forced Americans to build bridges. I'm sure yeah. we wouldn't hear the end of it. Okay, <laughs> Magna Carta out for that. Yes, yes. And does it have an? What kind of influence does it have on the idea of a constitution for, for the Americans? Is does it have any influence at all, or is that lurking at the back of their minds? Yeah, I mean, I think it's seen as you know a, a literal influence on on parts of the American Constitution, um, in particular the Fifth Amendment. Um, and so, I mean, so that's, you know, that's we're, we're, not giving evidence against yourself, is that right? Yes, yeah. yeah you take the fifth, yeah. In, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and 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 similar kinds of you know direct influences have been seen um, in uh, Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and also, obviously, through you know their connections to to Britain, um, the Indian Constitution, Canadian Constitution, um, various other Commonwealth countries, their their, their constitutions. So, it has had um, a genuine influence on constitution constitutions across the world and, and upon important statements of you know individual rights and liberties because you see ted i was i was so convinced you were going to just come on and say it's all it's all bunk <laughs> but you're you're going all winston churchill sorry yeah you know speaking i love it i love it yes i i, I have it ta- i've actually got it tattooed on my, on my <laughs> if I to open this shirt I'd... but do you know who ted, do you know who he reminds me of so in the early 80s Margaret Thatcher gave uh, Lawrence van der Post came to Downing Street and she showed him around Downing Street. She showed him all the busts <laughs> and stuff. And she said that what she really liked about being British was that if you went into the pub, you would hear people talking about Magna Carta and habeas <laughs> corpus and the rights of the freeborn Englishman. Yeah. And I never thought I would say this, but Ted is basically Margaret Thatcher in this podcast. So yeah. you really, you, you love all that stuff about individual liberty and, <laughs> and um, it's extraordinary. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And what no, do you I mean, think of, oh, go on, say. Well, I was going to say, you know, I think, uh, you know, as, as Thomas pointed out, I, I, um, I, I did spend some time on a blog that I no longer keep up sort of talking about Magna Carta balls and sort of, you know, and I, I think some of these kind of anti-lockdown, you know, um, sightings of, of Magna Carta would fit neatly into that description. But I, I think, on you know, I, I also don't want to kind of poo-poo the significance of this document uh, either, and or, or you know the, the the importance of the idea of individual liberty that it that is influenced and that it supports. And I think actually, if there's one thing to kind of take away from all of the anti-lockdown stuff, and I would say first of all, just you know, I think lockdowns are an important public health measure that have had to be put in place. But I think there is an important thing underneath this, which is actually um, what limitations are there on on the executive power in the UK to do certain things that it deems to be necessary in an emergency. And this is something that's come up before in terms of statutes, you know, Defence of the Realm Acts during during uh, two world wars and how those impinged upon individual liberties. And, you know, what are the barriers to a government doing that, basically? Well, because the Anonymous of Bethune, make fabulous names, okay. Uh, okay. anonymous chronicler who rode in the, the train of 
whatever it was, the Duke of Bethune or whatever, uh, said of, jo- of King John that he was a very bad man. And whenever he could, he told lies rather than the truth. So I guess <laughs> the key to Magna Carta is to try and stop bad men <laughs> who tell lies rather than the truth from having their evil way. That would yes. be, that would be the, the enduring perspective of, of Magna Carta. And perhaps, you know, in, in 2021, that's just as important as it was in, in 1215. You can say. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So the, the the um we've looked at, at the influence of Magna Carta on America and on various Commonwealth countries. But what about Britain itself? So what's what's the kind of line of inheritance that takes us from the seventeenth century through to twenty twenty one and the use of Magna Carta in lockdown disputes? Yeah, yeah. I mean it still has a it I think it's 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 got so embedded partly as a result of this, you know, enormous discussion in the 17th century, but also, you know, as a result of its late medieval circulation, it's got so embedded in in kind of, you know, the English kind of historical memory that it's continuing to be invoked um, by radical figures in the 18th century. So John John Wilkes refers to it in his kind of campaigns for, um, for press freedom. Um, and it also gets invoked by uh, radical movements in the late 18th and, and early 19th century. So the London Corresponding Society uh, members, you know, refer to uh, Magna Carta as, as, as giving them the sort of authority for their campaigns for um, manhood suffrage and the same with the Chartists on into the 19th century. And I think there's, you know, there's a few things here that are going on here. One is actually just the sort of the prominence of Magna Carta as a constitutional document as a reference point. But the other thing is actually also rhetorically the value of something like Magna Carta. And I think this is something you can see in modern invocations of it as well, that Magna Carta is a really useful reference point if you want to say, I'm arguing for these rights and they are my rights anyway, because I am a freeborn Englishman or I am a, you know, a British citizen. So you don't have to say, I need these things because the French revolutionaries are arguing for them. And, you know, therefore, you know, run risk of being declared unpatriotic or run risk of being declared responsible for the terror or, you know, any of those other things. You can you can paint yourself as a good, authentic John Bull, um, you know, traditionalist in arguing for these things because these things are embodied in Magna Carta. Right. So it's a it's a really useful, I think, rhetorical tool has been. Uh, over, over centuries for um, movements for kind of political reform um, and constitutional change. Because it was the kind of intersection point between David Davis and um, Tony Benn, wasn't it? <laughs> what was it? There was 48 deten- 48 day detention. 48 period. days detention, yes. And that yes. was under the Blair government. Yes, yes. And was it, you know, invoked as sort of, you know, the ushering in the death of, of, of Magna Carta, which again is a, you know, it's an interesting kind of historical echo because very similar things are said about uh, the revocation of habeas corpus in the late 18th and early 19th centuries, um, partly in, in, you know, in reaction to the activities of groups like the London Corresponding Society. And do you think with, um, with, with Brexit and perhaps the withdrawal from, you know, European Court of Justice and all that kind of thing. Yeah. Will this will the significance of Magna Carta as a kind of totem of English justice and liberty increase again, do you think? Yes, I think I think that has sort of, you know, heightened um the emphasis upon it again because of this sort of a sense in which this is something that is uniquely ours and it's not, yeah. you know, we're not kind of invoking some kind of airy fairy 
concept of natural rights or you know universal uh, liberty it's all um, no weird these, these, these are these stuff, are these are real you know <laughs> proper concerns British of the bulldog. Bulldog. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah i think we i think we've basically done magna yeah, carta we have done it we? i, I think just got one have... one Go last on, question so yeah. there are four there are four copies of it so there's no there's no one kind of master version is that they were just loads that were all of equal status and they all got sent out perhaps to cathedrals or whatever so there are there are two in the british museum british library two in the british library one in lincoln and one in salisbury which so, is the best so which is the best and why is it Salisbury? <laughs> <laughs> well i think tom i should i should let you argue that argue that point yeah it's salisbury um, guys i've it's seen salisbury. the lincoln one i think, <laughs> I think, I think <laughs> the lincoln is the lincoln one not the oldest have i made that up yeah no, they're all the same i mean I think it's definitely Lincoln. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think it's. There we go. I think the question is in Salisbury. Tom, the question is in Salisbury. Ted is Ted is the expert, and Ted is proclaimed. Lincoln. Uh, Lincoln. Uh, what I will grant to Lincoln is it's had the most interesting afterlife because I think it got sent to America during the Second World War as yeah, a I way of right, kind of. Was it yeah. America? Yeah. And it got stuck there, I think, and kind of ended up in Australia, and it only just made it back to to Lincoln oh, by the skin what, of its teeth. What a what a happy story! What a story of terrible <laughs> jeopardy and. And a but, nice resolution. But but the the one in Salisbury's been there the whole way through. So in a sense, it's the most true born. <laughs> I see. All yes. right, stop it. <laughs> so I think that's a good note on which to end. Thank you so okay. much for coming on and um, okay. putting, us, no putting us right about uh, Magna Carta. So we have decided Magna Carta did not die in vain. And um, thank you to Ted. And we will see you all next time um, for another fascinating glimpse of, of history. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com.